Welcome to another episode of this podcast series by the Program in International Nutrition at Cornell University, or as we like to call it, the PIM podcast. In this series, trainees in P interview leaders and rising stars in the field of international nutrition and global health. Today, our interviewers include myself. I am Elizabeth, a graduate student. Hi, and I'm Nidhi, a research aide. Today, we have the great pleasure of talking with Jennifer Cashin who is a public health nutritionist and certified lactation counselor with over a decade of experience in nutrition, food security, and public health in Myanmar and Cambodia. Jennifer is the Regional Associate Director for programs at Alive and Thrive East Asia Pacific, where she supports the development and implementation of work plans to achieve policy and system reforms aimed at creating and enabling environment for improved nutrition. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, for getting us started, we would love to hear more about your early career trajectory, perhaps your experiences as an MPH student at Tulane University and, and how you got to a life and thrive. Yeah, sure. So I think my career path is actually, I don't know, maybe a little against the grain or a little unusual. So I'll have to start before I got my MPH at Tulane. Um, when I finished undergrad, I frankly did not know what I wanted to do in life. And so I moved to Cambodia from the U.S. to Cambodia. And I thought, well, I'll just go have an adventure for a year and, and see another part of the world and, um, and experience life there. So I got a job as a preschool teacher for Cambodian students. And I did that for a year, but I did not like teaching at all. But I, I really fell in love with the country and I got uh, really interested in development. Cambodia has, I think, one of the largest nonprofit sectors in the world, more NGOs per capita, I think, than any other country at that time. So I started working for an NGO and started getting interested in, in public health and a little bit in nutrition specifically, but but more into public health. So I went back and got my, my MPH. And then after completing my degree, I moved back to Cambodia. So um, I started working for a variety of different NGOs, PATH, Save the Children, some USAID contractors. And yeah, it just kind of took off from there and did more and more consultancies. And life eventually brought me to Myanmar and um, and to Alive and Thrive. So yeah, it started with Cambodia and then it went to public health. <laughs> that sounds like a like an awesome adventure. <laughs> uh, and so for young professionals and, and students still going through university, I think it's always, we always get curious on how are things behind the scenes. So maybe could you talk to us a little bit about what does a day in your life look like? What do you do uh, in your work at Alive and Thrive? Yeah, thanks so much. So um, Alive and Thrive is a global initiative, but the, the project that I work on focuses on eight countries in East Asia Pacific region. Um, and we're basically a technical assistance project. So uh, we don't implement programs directly, but rather we provide technical assistance to governments and other partners to try to move policies that are more supportive of nutrition into place um, and make sure that strategies and like investments by governments and other partners are evidence-based. So a day in the life kind of involves, well, in my role, I coordinate the overall work plan for our team. So I, I sort of look at what we what our targets we promise to to our donors are for the year and basically how we're going to get there and follow up with different team members on on how things are going. And I think what makes it interesting is that it's across eight countries. So although we're kind of trying to achieve similar policies across the eight, the contexts are very different and the way to get there is is very different. So 
you know, for example, taking like, I'm going to talk a little bit about paid maternity leave in my presentation. So each country in the region has its own maternity leave policy. And sometimes we will notice that there's like a policy window opening. And so we'll work very hard during that time to kind of push new evidence, create compelling messages and materials for different audiences to try to to advance that policy. And so, yeah, that that leads me to a lot of the other work I do is kind of making and helping create knowledge products um, around these policies, evidence, and targeting them to different audiences and increasingly doing that virtually. But, you know, in the past, doing lots of meetings and workshops and um, trying to get the right people around the table. So yeah, work planning, knowledge products. And then we do a lot of research at Alive and Thrive, which is something that I really like. So I work with the monitoring, learning, and evaluation specialist in Vietnam. Uh, we do studies. So we did a study of about 1,000 pregnant women and mothers under two in Vietnam a couple of years back. Then we did a qualitative study with, I think, a few hundred mothers and, and fathers in the Philippines. Yeah. And then we are also doing, we did like a a desk review or a systematic scoping review of all the violations of the code of marketing of breast milk substitutes in the last 40 years recently. So lots of research and, and that part's really fun too. Thank you so much for sharing all this. It's really interesting to hear all the work that you do and everything that you have on your plate. So I was wondering, based on your current experience at Alive and Thrive and then your experience working internationally, what are some main challenge areas, in your opinion, that we should focus in the field of public health nutrition? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, I, I think if I think really simply about it, like the part of my training that I really think helped me the most, or maybe not the most, but the epidemiology and the research methods and learning a statistical package was something that was so important. And I'm so glad that I did. And I think it's such a great opportunity when you're studying to learn those skills because you really need them when it comes to um, not just doing the studies, but reading them and understanding them and how how different types of evidence are different and, and how that evidence can be used. So I think that was hugely, hugely important for me. Yeah. And then in terms of what to focus on, well, I don't know, the world's changing really rapidly, right? So like, I, I think technology and how we can use and harness technology to improve people's health, to reach them with, with health information and messaging that motivates them and encourages them to adopt better behaviors um, and also allows us to, to provide more support to health workers and direct service providers through technology. So yeah, I think you all probably know more than I do about that, but I think it's huge. And the pandemic just showed us that we need these things and we can use them to um, to the benefit of all. Yeah, thank you so much for pointing out the importance of evidence synthesis and technology in the field of public health, and also touching base on the epidemiological skills that we need in this field. And going off of that, based on your experience as a graduate student or based on your experience during the MPH program, what are some skills that you gained during your graduate work that has helped you in your current role? Well, certainly, you know, the the evidence, like being able to understand the evidence and synthesize it. Yeah, I think a lot of my roles right out of grad school were, you know, I did I did a lot of consultancies, right? So my my job was very like discreet. It was one task. And often that task would be something like a situation analysis of nutrition in a particular country, 
or a situational analysis of infant and young child feeding practices in, in one community. Um, so being able to find and review and synthesize the evidence, I think, was really important in the early days after grad school. Since then, I think my roles have gotten a little more complex and maybe a little less technical as well, which has its pros and cons. But yeah, certainly in the beginning, like being able to to understand an issue and and break it down for sometimes an audience that is not technically nutrition focused. So how do you synthesize information for an audience like maybe a policymaker or maybe even more likely like a, a country director or or a health lead for a UN agency or for a an NGO to make decisions about their program and what to implement? And, and that is a great segue into my next question, because it's going on that in terms of for young professionals, for people entering this and perhaps even starting to look into uh, consultancy opportunities, mm-hmm. what do you think are the skills or, or sort of like the main focus in terms of what sometimes they call soft skills to have for joining this world of international nutrition? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely like a can-do attitude and being flexible is pretty huge because sometimes like, you know, in our work, especially in NGO work, you know, like the funding is not always, it's not always long term. So sometimes you just have to kind of jump on something and you have a narrow window to act in. So, so being flexible, certainly, I think being able to communicate clearly and well, um, and then building relationships um, with folks. I mean, you all are at Cornell and you have this wonderful alumni network. So leveraging some of those, those relationships, I was fortunate to do an internship while I did my MPH with a Tulane grad who was working at UNICEF. And so, you know, we had the same supervisor, we were able to connect on that and, and that really opened up some new opportunities for me. So communications, networking, and, and then also I think just flexibility and um, sometimes willingness to travel, sometimes willingness to be up on late night phone calls, things like that. Well, I have a couple of, of follow-ups from your mm-hmm. previous answers. One of them is, how do you do it in terms of, you're talking about simplifying scientific messages, uh, science information to different audiences. And also you mentioned working across different countries in, in sort of like how to cross-pollinate a little mm-hmm. bit of like the best experiences from one country to, to the other in a interdisciplinary fashion, which mm-hmm. seems pretty complex. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it is a little complex. And certainly, like, um, whenever you're doing cross country knowledge exchange or programs, like there's sensitivities country to country, too. We just kind of know in East Asia Pacific, which countries work well together and which countries don't work as well together. And, and it's not always true. Like, you can't say that, you know, one country is not going to appreciate a learning exchange to another. But you have to be sort of thoughtful about the level at which you engage and what sorts of people you put together. You know, we've had a lot of success with like cross-country learning exchange, actual visits, and and those are really powerful. People always like to get outside of their their own context and see what others are doing. It also provides an opportunity for like a delegation to get closer with one another. Like if they come from one country to another, they travel together, they eat their meals together, they get closer and they they kind of develop ideas. So in Alive and Thrive, we use Vietnam a lot because that was one of our kind of proof of concept countries. We've been working there since 2009 as a host for these types of learning exchanges. Um, so those have been really successful. Other other examples are like when you take something 
really technical and you get people together from different countries on that field, they just it just naturally happens that they have lots to talk about. So an example is that we support human milk banks in Southeast Asia. And when we got the different countries' milk banks together, it was like immediately a spark. There was no need for us to really even talk. It's just they they had so much to share with each other. And that's an interesting one too, because there currently there is no global guidance for human milk banking. So in the absence of that, countries really work very closely together to develop the best protocols and, and make sure that they're doing the best they can. Speaking of international collaborations, partnerships, and finding a specific research topic that you want to do in some other part of the world, and in your case, um, East Asia, how do you get started? How do you build the network? And how do you find people to collaborate with? And how do you pitch in your idea and get things off the ground and running? Right. So for us, like when we do research, um, it's included in like our work plan or kind of like learning agenda for a particular grant. So um, I'm very happy that Alive and Thrive is very like evidence focused. So whenever we apply for a grant, there's always like a research or evidence component to it. So the actual process then would start with developing like a protocol. And we, we've been publishing our protocols in journals specifically for protocols, which is pretty interesting. Some people didn't know those journals exist, but they do. Um, and that's always a really good place to start when you're looking, you know, to not reinvent the wheel, but maybe you want to do a survey and you think that um, there's probably tools, validated tools out there that could be adapted. And then we, you know, we are a small organization. We don't have a team of researchers to do this. So we usually contract a local research firm to actually do the survey. And then we provide kind of oversight and guidance and quality control. So, you know, our team in Vietnam has a pretty long list of agencies that they've worked with, but typically it's one that has, you know, can mobilize and and hire up enumerators and, and survey managers in the field. And then you have to get approvals. But in some cases, it's not just a matter of getting like IRB. It's also getting the government, for example, on board and interested in that research and say like, okay, this is valuable because it's not worthwhile to do research if the kind of findings are not going to be taken up or from our perspective, the findings aren't going to be taken up or or necessarily accepted. So we've had lots of great experiences. And then we've also had experiences where the government has basically said, no, we're not interested. So that's, you know, I think you have to take it based on what the country's priorities are at the time and make sure it aligns with those. I mean, it totally makes sense, but also sounds that uh, like there is a lot of uncertainty and and complexity, like we said uh, previously in this work, which is part of what makes it exciting, I think. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so the next couple of questions are the usual uh, usual traditions in our our podcast. So Mm -hmm. this one is, what's the best advice that you have ever received? The best advice I ever received I mean, this is really simple, but um, I think it was one of the PhD students or maybe even my supervisor at Tulane or um, or my advisor, you know, just to go ahead and brand yourself with what you are. And sometimes it's hard in public health nutrition because what is public health nutrition? You know, you're not you're not a dietitian, but you're not just a public health person. So, you know, a public health nutritionist or a food security and public health nutritionist or a food security specialist, whatever it is, just brand yourself and you can change the branding later on. 
but sometimes that branding helps people understand where you're trying to go and what um, skills you have to take you there, basically. I have gone through a few iterations of this and finally ended up with public health nutritionist. But um, yeah, I, th- I think it's important and you know, it doesn't have to be forever and you don't have to shout it or make your own special business card, but it, it does help to kind of have a name attached with, with what you're trying to do. Well, we do have to wrap up the podcast now and I wish we could go on for a bit longer. It was really interesting listening to you talk about public health nutrition and your career trajectory. But before we let you go, we only have one more question and that Mm -hmm. is what is the worst thing about your job and what is the best thing about your job? Oh, that's again, like an interview question. So I think um, the best thing about my job, I'll start with that, is getting to work with so many people from different cultures and backgrounds. It's just amazing. Um, I've learned so much and I can't imagine my life just living in a small-ish world. So it it makes the world feel very big. And and I love working with people from different cultures and backgrounds. Um, The worst thing I think for me probably right now is the time difference between myself and my colleagues, which is 13 hours. And, And that's a small one. We work around it. Uh, but yeah, I think the world that we're living in now, post-COVID, whatever, like we're doing things virtually more frequently um, and that has huge benefits, but also cons as well. And one of them is we have to get up at odd hours sometimes um, and, and we don't get to see each other in person as much. So yeah, those are probably the worst and, and fairly minor. Yeah, that, that sounds like an omen for a lot of caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just keep the coffee on. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you so very much for joining us today, Jennifer. Sure. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for the great questions and for inviting me to do this. Yeah, it was awesome. And it was great to learn about everything you have done and and currently doing. Also, thank you to all the listeners of this podcast and stay tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in international nutrition and global health. Thank you for listening.